Well, it's good to be back. It's rather strange. I hope I remember how to teach. Uh, I cannot tell you how difficult it is sitting in your bedroom by yourself teaching a lesson. Uh, first off, I talk way too fast when I'm by myself. Nobody ever laughs at my jokes, so I just stopped. And I had to put pants on this morning. So it's very different. I will let you know, though, that if I get partway into the lesson and I go blah, 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 that means I'm stopping the recording and starting over again. Because you don't know that I did that every week, multiple times. Uh, I did make it through one complete lesson, and about three hours later, I said, I don't like that one, I'll do it again. And for those of you who are interested in such statistics, the first time I recorded it, it was 59 minutes long, and I covered 11 verses. The second time I recorded it, it was 52 minutes long, and I covered four verses. <laughs> if I had done it again, I would have made it through one verse. Well, first off, the most important thing that happened while we were gone, this is uh, grandson number three. He was uh, born four months ago today. This is Noah. So now I have three grandsons that all showed up at some point during the, uh, the lockdown. Uh, that is Micah, Noah, and Luther. So we have two biblical names and one family name. So it's been a while. Remember, we have started a new series on worldviews. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with my form of teaching, uh, this is not exactly what I like to do. I like to start a book of the Bible, verse 1, chapter 1, and go, 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 and finish it. But I have done worldviews before, primarily to high school students. As they are preparing to go away to college, I will teach a worldview course to them. And whatever it was, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, I did teach it to our class. So we are trying to discuss what a biblical worldview looks like because of the weird world in which we live right now. So the definition that we've been using is from James Sire. It says, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold, consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. It's the way we look at the world, I heard a quote this week from R.C. Sproul, and he referred to it as happy inconsistency. The fact that we go through life and we choose this piece of a worldview because we like it. And we choose this piece of a worldview because we like it. The fact that the two of them are totally inconsistent with each other is irrelevant. But that's what we're looking at. And today we are going to look at postmodernism. I do this to tell you one simple thing. We live in a postmodern world. If you are not a postmodernist, and you might be and not know it, your children are, your grandchildren certainly are, and that's just the air we breathe. But before we do that, I'm going to give you the story of my life. Okay? 
in one chart. Uh, a lot of you know a lot about me. Some of you know more than others. Some of you know more than you ought to know. I was born 1957. I went to Eastern Hills Elementary School. I went to Meadowbrook Middle School. Technically, it was middle, uh, Meadowbrook Junior High the first year and Meadowbrook Middle School the second year. And I only went there two years. Then I went to Eastern Hills High School. I went to the University of Texas at Arlington where I got a Bachelor of Science degree in math. If you haven't noticed, I like math. I went to Texas Christian University and got my master's degree in software development. By that time, the company was paying for it because I could not have afforded to go to TCU. I started working at General Dynamics in May of 1979. I spent two years of my years there in Virginia. Uh, General Dynamics and 13 other major corporations put together a consortium on how to write software better. And I was General Dynamics representative to the Software Productivity Consortium. So we lived outside of DC. I retired last summer after spending 40 years and I retired from Lockheed Martin. No, I didn't move, my job didn't change, the company just kept changing names. And for those of you who are interested, this is just an odd thing, um, you may not have ever noticed, but I have never, ever, in any lesson I have ever taught, mentioned the name of the company that I work for. But I retired. Now they can't do anything to me. <laughs> it is interesting, the responsibilities associated with particularly being a supervisor at a particular company. Uh, I am now a history teacher at Science Etc., which is a school for homeschoolers. Very small classes. I teach world history to 12 different people, okay? Now, the important things. I married Teresa in 1982. We had our first date on Thanksgiving weekend the year before, and we got married October of 82. And now comes the fun part. Douglas was born in 1984. Douglas works here at the church. He does AV stuff over in the other building. Julianne was born in 86. She is a nurse in Pennsylvania. Amy was born in 88. She is a uh, teacher in Colorado Springs. Abigail was born in 1990. She is a teacher in Frisco. Laura was born in 1993. She is a nurse here at Harris Hospital, which is the same hospital she was born in, the same hospital I was born in, and the same hospital my mother was born in. My father was not born there. He was born at home. Uh, Jonathan was born in 1995. Tess was born in 1997. Oh, Jonathan is my Marine son. He did four and a half years of active duty. He is now in the reserves and he's going to college. Tess was born in 97. She graduated last year from college and she is a social worker. And Kylie was born in 2002. She is my baby and we dropped her off a month ago at college at Stephen F. Austin. We must be old. <laughs> and if you can't count, yes, there are eight of them. Julianne married Brennan in 2011. 
Brennan is a firefighter in Maryland. Amy married Tom in 2014. Tom does human resources stuff for Young Life at their headquarters in Colorado Springs. Abigail married Josh in 2017. Josh spent many years in the Army as a medic. He is currently going to physical therapy, coach training, whatever school, graduates in a year. Uh, Douglas married Hannah in 2017. Hannah drives an ambulance. She is an EMT, paramedic, excuse me. Uh, she got off this morning and came to our house and picked up baby Luther. Uh, Hannah has been wonderful for Douglas. Just put that on the record. Uh, Laura married Michael in 2018. Michael is a pastor at uh, Watermark. Just starting out that, he was actually an Aggie, but I try not to hold that against him. Uh, Tess married Seve in 2020. That was this year. They were talking about getting married at spring break, but we decided to go ahead and do it in January, which was a good thing because it would not have happened at spring break. So Seve graduates uh, with a mechanical engineering degree at the end of uh, this year. So Micah was born in 2017. Luther was born in 2019. Noah was born in 2020. And we have another one due in January. This is just a quick look at the story of my life. I could actually spend lots more time talking about the different good things that have happened, the bad things that have happened, the diseases that I've had, the people that I've met, all the books that I have read, the lessons that I've taught, all of that, all of that would encompass my life. But, oh, I forgot, Savannah joined the family this year. Y'all haven't met Savannah. She's 19 years old. She's moved in six months ago, and she'll probably be here for a while. Go figure. But we know, we know that that story of my life is not the complete picture because we know that my life is in the middle of a much bigger picture that God has created. So we know that God created the world. We know that man fell and sin entered the world. You can read that in Genesis chapter 3. And then God has spent, well, if you look at the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament figuring out how to get mankind back into a right relationship with God. And finally, Jesus came. He died to provide salvation for us. And then at some point in the future, there's going to be a second coming. And at some point in the future, after that, there's going to be judgment and then heaven or hell. And my life fits in the middle of that story. Okay? No, these are not to scale. Okay? But that's where it looks. Or, if you wanted a different way of looking at it, there is a big picture story. And then there's the story of my life. And it could just as well be the story of your life. As I said, we are going to talk today about postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is a very broad term. I've got a book at home that's about postmodernism that's about art. Okay? We're not going to talk about art today. I don't know much about art. We're going to talk about it as a philosophical system, in particular a system of knowledge and what we know and what we can know 
about the world around us. But to do that, we need to change a couple of words. Instead of calling that the big picture story, we're going to call it the meta-narrative. And the story of my life is the narrative of my life. It is the story. Once again, we can have the narrative of your life. And all of this fits into the big picture. So, here it comes. You can write it down. Here's the definition of postmodernism. I actually, when I first heard this, thought it was a joke because I thought it was a bumper sticker. But it actually is the definition that they use. Are you ready? Postmodernism is incredulity toward meta narratives, disbelief toward the existence of any form of meta narrative. To give a longer definition, Postmodernism is a viewpoint that holds a general distrust of theories, narratives, and ideologies that attempt to put all the knowledge into a single framework. That is the definition of postmodernism, to which you respond, so what? And all of this lesson is going to be to convince you that it's a really big so what? Why does the postmodernist want to get rid of meta-narratives? Well, the first obvious reason is that the 20th century, just looking at the 20th century, was full of meta-narratives. I presented to you the biblical Christian meta-narrative. But it wasn't the only one, and it wasn't the only one in the 20th century. We had communism. Communism itself is a meta-narrative. We will actually talk about that in next week's lesson. What the meta-narrative of communism is. Suffice it to say, it is dialectical materialism. It is the idea that economic systems continue to fight each other, and inevitably, it is going to end up in the worker's paradise of communism. Well, how did that turn out? Well, we know that somewhere in the range of 100 million people died in the 20th century because of communism. Number two, Nazism. The belief in the superiority of the Aryan race above and beyond everything else, and they are going to control the world because it is inevitable. It is a meta-narrative based on race. What about... The Japanese and their worship of the emperor. That is a meta-narrative. What about fascism? What about nationalism? What about all of these? The 20th century was full of meta-narratives, and the end result was disaster. So, wouldn't it be better if we just got rid of them because all these meta-narratives spend their entire existence fighting each other? I mean, we can go back even further. Christianity to the postmodernist is a meta-narrative that has spent its life fighting the secularists, fighting the witches, fighting the Muslims, fighting everybody. Wouldn't it be better if we just got rid of all of these meta-narratives? So when the postmodernist saw the end results of meta-narratives, they did not see 
the Christian view of heaven. When you and I look at the Christian biblical worldview meta narrative, what we see at the end of it is heaven, and that's a glorious picture. What the communists see at the end of it is the worker's paradise. No government necessary at all. Everybody just works to provide their needs. We help each other. Life is good. The Enlightenment Project itself, we'll talk about that in just a moment. The whole idea of reason helping us to solve all the world's problems, that's not what the postmodernists see. What they see is that. Do you know what that is? What is it? It's the gates of Auschwitz. The postmodernists look at history and all they see, all they see are meta-narratives fighting meta-narratives fighting meta-narratives and that's where they end up. And they said, to heck with all of them. Let's just get rid of every meta-narrative. I mean, think about it. I mean, it makes sense, right? If there weren't any religions, we wouldn't be having religious wars. If there weren't any nations, we wouldn't have nations fighting each other. If there weren't different philosophical systems, just think about that. Imagine a world, well, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine there are no countries and no religions to kill or die for. John Lennon's song, this right here is a post-modernist anthem. You may not know this, because I actually didn't know it until a couple of months ago. They actually play this in Times Square every New Year's after the ball drops. You may also not know this, but there is actually a movement in our country right now to replace the national anthem with this. I don't think it's going to get very far, but there are people collecting signatures to do it. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. What divides you and me, what divides us from them, what divides them from the other thems, are meta-narratives. Wouldn't it be best if we just got rid of them? And that's the postmodernist view. How does this look in your everyday life? How can you recognize a postmodernist when one walks up to you and bites you on the nose? Well, I'm going to give you three different answers. The first answer is the kind answer. You've come to this church, you heard a nice sermon about evangelism, and you get really motivated. Okay? You get really motivated to go share the gospel with your neighbor who you've had to do. I mean, you needed to do this for years. So you go over to your neighbor. You have a good relationship with them. You sit down with them. You have coffee. You sit there, talk about family and all that. And then you start telling them what Jesus has done for you. You tell them that Jesus has given you purpose and meaning of life. You talk about how, G how the church has helped your marriage. You talk about how it helped raise the kids. You talk about it, and they just smile and go, yes, yes, yes. And then they say, that just doesn't work for me. They're not against you. They don't care that you have a meta-narrative. It just doesn't work for them. It isn't 
what they need right now. If it works for you, fine. You go to your church. I'm going to go to something else. I'm going to go bowling with my friends, and it'll accomplish the same thing. We see that everywhere. Number two, the mild answer. You decide that you need to get a little more aggressive talking to your friend. And you tell them that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And what do they say? Well, that is just your opinion. How many of times have you stated some biblical truth to somebody and they respond back, well, that's just your opinion? When I've taught this before, I have given a little test. I'm not going to do that because we're not supposed to hand out pieces of paper and things like that. The first question of the test is a math problem. The second question of the test is how tall is Mount Everest? The third question is how do I get from the front door of the church to Dallas? And the fourth question is what is the best ice cream? Well, the first answer has a very, the first question has a very definite answer to it. Okay? You work through the equation, you know what the answer is. The second one is interesting because I usually don't look up the elevation of Mount Everest, but I know that even though I don't know it, I know there's an answer. There's a factual answer, even if I don't know it. The third one is kind of a better, best, not so good type of question. There's more than one way to get from the front of this church to Dallas. There's probably a better way, go down 30, unless they're working on it, then maybe you'll go down 20, unless they're really working. There are good ways and not so good ways. The answer to the fourth question is, Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream. <laughs> that is the only, but wait a minute. We all know that that question is just a matter of opinion. Now, my opinion happens to be correct, but... When you mention that Jesus is the only way, to the rest of the world, it's exactly the same as saying, Bluebell, homemade vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream. Well, it is for you. If that works for you, that's fine. Now, there's a third answer. I, I started to label that the unkind answer. You go into some public forum either speaking or just in a group of people or online, and you're talking to a group of people, and you just happen to make some comment about modern sexual morality. You just do. I was in some situation, I won't tell you what it was, and I just happened to mention something about homosexuality, and somebody said, oh, you have trouble with homosexuality? And I said, yes. That's all I said. Who are you to be so arrogant to believe that you, that your opinion is truth? In fact, it's more than just how can you be so arrogant? How can you be so wicked and evil to think that some writers writing thousands of years ago have any say about how we define sexual morality today? 
That is the world in which we live. How can you hold to such an answer? That is postmodernism. That is the belief there is no right and wrong. There is no standard outside myself. Now, let's spend just a second talking about philosophically where this came from. To do that, we're going to talk about how we know things. Okay, what are the sources of knowledge? From a philosophical standpoint, this is called epistemology, the study of how we know, what we know, when we know, etc. And to do this, let's divide the world into three time periods. In the middle, we're going to have the modern time period. Now, I know you think that's weird because aren't we always living in the modern time period? No, we are living in the postmodern time period. The modern time period is basically the Enlightenment. Go back to the 17th century, 18th century, and this idea of reason. We're going to talk about that. So on one side of that, we have the pre-modern, and on the other side, we have the post-modern. Pre-modern is often just referred to as the ancients, the old folks, okay? In the ancient world, there were three ways of getting knowledge. There was revelation. God told me. They would accept the scripture. They would accept the Quran. They would accept something else as knowledge that you get given to us by God. You get to the modern period, the Enlightenment, and revelation is, is taken off the list. All you are left with is reason and experience. The scientist growing out of the Enlightenment mentality had the idea that if you can't weigh it, measure it, touch it, it does not exist. And I might add, at this point we see all kinds of philosophical work going on trying to preserve revelation. You see it within the church, you see it within philosophical world where Immanuel Kant started coming up with this idea of yes, we get knowledge from God, but it's in this category by itself. It doesn't deal with reason. If you've ever read any Francis Schaeffer, this is where he starts drawing those pictures of the upper and the lower. The upper is the higher truth, God. But eventually, if you've removed reason from the higher truth, then people don't believe the higher truth anymore. It just disappears. Which brings us to the postmodern world. Obviously, they don't believe in revelation, but guess what? We don't believe in reason either. And all we are left with is my experience. Remember that picture up front. The big picture, the big story, and my life and your life in the midst of that. Well, take away the big story, and all there is on the chart is your life, my life, Next person's life, everybody's life. Now, this is interesting because people say, well, we still believe in reason. I mean, aren't we a strong believer in reason? Don't we like science? Don't we like the technology that it provides to us? Don't we like the medical stuff? Well, we do. We like the things that reason gives to us. But here's the problem. From a philosophical viewpoint, reason 
in and of itself cannot answer the big questions of life. It can't. Next week, we will just briefly mention critical theory. And I read a book about critical theory this summer, and it had this interesting statement that appeared numerous times quoting these modern thinkers. And this was not a Christian book, by the way, not any form or fashion. And it said, we have to believe in hope even though we know there is no hope. Why? Because our reason says there is no hope. Our reason tells us you are an evolved creature, just like your dog. And at the end of the day, you're going to die, just like your dog, and you're going to be put in the ground, and you're going to become food for worms, and that's it. If you don't have a meta-narrative, that's all there is. And guess what? That doesn't give you much hope. So, what's wrong with postmodernism? Doesn't it sound good? I mean, imagine there are no wars. Imagine we don't fight about things. Imagine, I mean, doesn't that sound good? What's wrong with it? Number one, it does not correspond to reality. It just doesn't. I mean, What we're going to contend is that the biblical worldview is correct. It's not correct because it's my opinion that it's correct. It's correct because it's correct. It corresponds with reality. This is, by the way, the usual definition in philosophical works about what truth is. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And here's the question. You wake up and you think your life has meaning and purpose. You acknowledge you don't know what that is, but you think it does. Why do you think that? I told you I read a short book earlier in the year, The Meaning of Life, a very short introduction. That's the complete title. The first 90% of the book was why would we even ask such a question? What is it that drives us to ask such a question? Well, I know the answer to that question. We're made in the image of God. And even if we run off chasing after other meta-narratives, we are made in the image of God. We have to have some meaning. So, it does not answer the big questions of life. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? How can we be saved? Do we even need to be saved? Why is there evil in the world? You read that song by John Lennon and you become convinced that the reason there is evil in the world is because there are meta-narratives. No. There's evil in the world because you and I are sinners. Etc., etc., etc. It gives us no framework to live together. Okay? You have your experience. I have my experience. My experience tells me that killing cats is a fun thing to do. I have not actually killed a cat. Our cat did finally disappear. And I tell the kids that obviously it's having trouble getting out of the sack that I put it in with the rocks, but I didn't really do that. 
But let's say that I do believe that killing cats for fun is a great thing to do. And you happen to love cats. How are you going to tell me, based solely on your experience and my experience, that it's wrong for me to kill cats? You can't do that. We have no basis for determining whether the behavior of someone else is right or wrong. We have no standard if all we have is my experience and your experience. So ultimately, ultimately, it will not work. It's just not going to work. I was reading an article just yesterday and it made the comment that when people started getting rid of, and this was in a secular magazine, when people started getting rid of Christian morality, the idea is that we would live in a world where, well, just do whatever you want to do. And the article said, no, we're not living in that world. The article said, if you thought the biblical morality was tough, wait until you see the post-Christian morality. Because they had their ideas. In fact, if you really want to watch a postmodernist head explode, convince them that postmodernism is a meta narrative. It is. You have to have a way of living in this world, and you and I have to come up with some level of agreement about what truth is. So, about time we get to a Bible verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So if you and I were asking this question, what are the most important words in this verse? I would say way, truth, and life. And if I were teaching this, you and I could have a long, lengthy discussion about what way, truth, and life means. But what is it that drives the postmodernist crazy? The. I am the way, not a way, I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, not just another one. Biblical Christianity teaches us that there is such a thing as truth. Francis Schaeffer goes so far. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> well, even if Jesus said to you, you know, this is a way of working, I think you might let him off the hook. Maybe. But you're probably right. They'd zap him too. Right. But they hate him because of this exclusive statement that he is the only way. I've told you before in here, I have read the sayings of Confucius actually multiple times, and I like them, okay? They're good, okay? But I don't think they're the way, the truth, and the life. It's just a good book written by some ancient guy who thought a lot. It is when Jesus says, I am thee, that we get upset. So, all kinds of verses. You can read them at your leisure. All scripture is breathed out by God.
The sum of your word is truth. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Your experience is important. We learn things by experience. You touch the hot stove and you learn not to do that. But your experience is not the guide for truth. Do not lean on your own understanding. You know how this works, right? I know a guy who's homosexual and he's a good guy. Well, I'm glad he's a good guy. I really am. But that doesn't make it right. It just means he's a good guy. And I'd rather him be a good guy than not be a good guy. But your own understanding is not the criteria of truth. You know this statement. Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now we do not know what inflection Pilate put on this, but I suspect there was a certain sneer of what is the truth? Because I know for Pilate what the truth is. The truth is that which the Roman Empire says is the truth. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. So, how do we respond to postmodernism? It's a blank chart, right? I've told you before that on Saturday nights before I teach, I go walk around the park and I teach my lesson. Well, with all the COVID and all that shutdown, I've been walking around the park every night, okay? Most every night. So about nine or 10 o'clock, I like doing it when it's dark and there's fewer people in the park, I go walking. And about a month ago, I was sitting there wrestling with this thing of postmodernism. And to be quite honest, I had trouble not giving in to despair. Because if every time I speak the truth to somebody, they say, well, that's just your opinion, what am I to do? And I had this vision of just trying to crawl out of the tar pit of postmodernism. I am not going to tell you how to eliminate postmodernism from this world. Because you can't do it, and I can't do it. Where we need to start is we need to learn the Bible. Because if the church does not believe in truth, then how will the world? The problem is not just that there's postmodernism out there. The problem is that you and I have so integrated into our own lives that we don't even know it. I was teaching this class one time, not in here, over in our other area, and I read a Bible verse. I just read the verse. And before I could say anything about that verse, a lady held up her hand and she said, but that's just your opinion. How can we 
as believers share the truth in a postmodern world if we do not believe the truth. We have to come to an understanding of what truth is. Francis Schaeffer even gets awkward and refers to it as true truth. To differentiate it between, uh, from what we accept as truth in our world today. You need to learn the Bible and you need to accept that the Bible is not just one truth, but the truth. Now, your neighbor's not going to like that answer. The people in a different political party may not like that answer. At this point, I don't care. I do care, but at this point, I don't care because I want you to understand the necessity of learning that the Bible is the word of God and is the truth given to us. Read a Bible verse. Love your enemies just to pick some random verse. You then take every mental capacity that you have to figure out how to do that. Don't use your mental capacity to try to determine whether it's true or not. You can do both. But if you're trying to figure out whether it's true or not, how many biblical truths are you waiting for some psychologist or historian or philosopher to come up with a a defense of it so that then you can believe it. We need to begin to live as if the Bible is the word of God. And of course, we need to do this with humility. Okay? There have been times, often, when we as believers become arrogant and we use the Bible as a club to beat people over the head. And if you've listened to the first Lessons in this series on Christian worldviews, I am not at all interested in giving you a club to beat people over the head. In fact, if I could focus your thinking, don't even think about those people out there. Think about your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. I know even if your grandchild is running amok in postmodernism, you don't want to beat him over the head. You want him to understand the truth. And that's what we need to do. We need to do it humbly. G.K. Chesterton has an interesting quote about humility. It's a little long, so I won't pretend to quote it. But he says, humility has changed in the modern era. Humility means I recognize my limitations. It doesn't mean that I deny the existence of truth. I may not be able to understand the Bible, but the Bible is still the word of God. Whether I have difficulties with it doesn't matter. Humility is the acknowledgement that I sometimes fall short. And along with that is we do need to be careful. If we try to make our opinions into God's truth, the world is, going, is not going to know the difference between the two. Let's face it. You and I have some strongly held beliefs that we want to be biblical. And they might. We take a scripture and we try to understand how that relates to everyday life, but it isn't the same as the word of God. We can still teach it with due humility. But let's just remember 
what the truth really is. And finally, be ready. Let me tell you how life works. There are good days and there are bad days. We are all old enough to know that. We're all old enough to know that there's good days and there's bad days. Well, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, they're not old enough to know that. And they think life is good. They think everything's going to work out. They imagine that if there's no meta-narratives, life is going to be perfect. And one of these days, life is going to whack them up the side of the head. And when that happens, you need to be ready. You need to know the truth. And you need to be able to explain it to them with love, patience, humility. When things are good, it's difficult sometimes to share the truth. But when things get bad, people come looking for the truth. And the Bible, Christ, God is the only source of truth. And we need to be ready to tell them about it. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is truth. Thank you for sending your son to save us from our strange, messed up lives. I pray, Lord, that we would learn the truth and we would learn the truth from you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.